It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of the world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or reviler, or drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we lift up this time to you now, Lord. We pray and ask for your blessing as we enter into a time of hearing from you. Lord, use me to uh, preach the word clearly, to not rest on uh, my flesh, Lord, and not rest on my own opinions, but that I would communicate the truth of your word that we might all learn and grow this morning together. And I pray this in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So Pastor Keith had finished last week talking about church discipline. And he went into a bit of the motivation behind church discipline, which we will talk about in more detail today, but this motivation of love. And the reason why Paul had this motivation of love is because in the previous verse, he had just said to the church of Corinth, he'd called them my beloved children. He sees himself as a father and he sees the church of Corinth as his children. And so then he says, should I come to you with gentleness or with a rod? And now in chapter 5, he's going to address an issue in the church that requires the rod. Now, this is a difficult passage. It's difficult for a couple reasons. The first reason is it's hard because most people don't understand church discipline and why it's so incredibly important within the body of Christ. The other reason it's so difficult is because a lot of churches just simply don't practice church discipline. And by refusing to practice church discipline or recognize when other churches practice discipline, they bring reproach upon the name of Christ. 
And so I feel the need this morning as I was praying through this passage and diving deeply into what it meant and how we could apply it, that what we need to do is we need to dive deep into some details of the text so that what we can do is dispel some of the misconceptions and myths that kind of float around about church discipline and then show you why it's not lacking of grace and it's not heavy-handed, but why it is so important for the church and for the unrepentant sinner, and then to warn you as an exhortation that if you undermine church discipline, maybe you don't agree with it, maybe you think it's too harsh, then who you are actually undermining is Christ himself, and you need to repent. And then we will end our time with some application of how do we understand and respond to church discipline, and then how do we keep ourselves from being this man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So, verses 1 and 2, Paul starts with, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and an immorality of such a kind that does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. So he says, You have become arrogant, and you have not mourned. Instead, so that the one who has done this deed will be removed from your midst. So Paul has been made aware of this grave sin that has been tolerated within the church. And he says it's the kind of sin that even the Gentiles don't even tolerate. There's this uh, man, Cicero, who was born about 100 years before Christ. And he had written about incest and said that it was not appropriate. And he specifically addressed mother-in-laws and son-in-laws. But he said this was not appropriate It was wrong. And then about a hundred years after Paul had written this letter, a Roman jurist named Gaius actually made it illegal for um, a marriage between a stepmother and a stepson. So in this time period, those outside of the church, those Gentiles who are committing such grave sins already, even understood that this was an act of incest and it was Deplorable, and it should not be tolerated in society. Paul says that someone, that a man, has his father's wife. Now, this is very specific wording because what Paul is actually drawing on is he's drawing on the holiness code in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11. If there's a man who lies with his father's wife, He has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. And Deuteronomy 27.20 says, Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife, because he has uncovered his father's nakedness, and all the people shall say, Amen. This was a grave sin before the Lord. And it was a kind of sin that actually incurred, incurred blood guilt on those who acted. And what, if you don't know about the law of God, is when you have done something that incurs blood guilt, you cannot restore that with anything but your life. So it's not like when you steal, what you can do is pay off the debt that you stole. You have to return what you've stolen, and then you have to pay off the debt of what you have stolen. 
But with blood guiltiness, there is no possibility to restore that. What you have done has marred the image of God and the communities to such an extent that the payment is your life. What it shows us is that not all sin is entirely equal in the eyes of God. Now, I'm sure that most of you have heard otherwise. Well, what you should hear is that all sin is damning before God. All sin makes us fall short of the glory of God, and we are all equally um, deserving of His wrath and hell for eternity because we have been rebelling against God. That's what all sin does. So all sin is damning. All sin deserves hell. But some sins, there are certain sins that have graver consequences for the community in the eyes of God. Some sins do not create the same kind of communal harm as others. And for those sins that are so grave and so deplorable into ruining the community, God has established those as sins of blood guiltiness. Because it is something that cannot be restored except for with someone's life. So there are certain sins that have such communal harm that what has been done is irrevocable. And I mean on a horizontal level. So in the law of God, there are sins like murder and rape, kidnapping, incest, adultery, homosexuality, blaspheming, witchcraft, and a deliberate shaming and dishonoring of your parents. That what it does is it's not simply affecting you and your private life, but it has opened up the community to what Paul will then say later is leaven within the dough. It has opened up the community to... Um, not only approve, but then start participating in these kind of wicked acts. In fact, it was for these sins that God told Israel that the previous nations who have the land that he is bringing Israel into, it is because they have committed these sins that God is spitting them out of the land. He's having the land vomit them out, and he says exactly why in the Holiness Code between Leviticus chapter 18 and 20 that they have committed these grave sins, and so therefore they need to be destroyed. And then he warned them that if you commit these sins, you too will be forced out of the land. So there is... On the one hand, no sin that God will tolerate. Jesus makes that clear in the Sermon on the Mount, that God examines the very heart, right? Adultery is not something that's just committed on the outside. It is something that can take place in the heart with a looking of lust, and that is true. But some sins, when they are acted upon and go beyond the heart, have dire consequences because of the people it harms and the influence it creates within the community. And that's exactly what's happening here in the community of faith in Corinth, the church. So Paul says, you have become arrogant. You have not mourned instead. So Paul's saying, you, you, you 
instead of tolerating this sin, what you should have done is you should have mourned over the sin. And you should have mourned in such a way that it would have removed the sin from your midst. See, this church has functioned as if this gross sin in the church did not disturb them. And they should have mourned. Now, this idea of mourning, this was actually a formal state of mourning that was affecting the life and the worship of the church. Basically, there should be a spirit in the room, so to speak, of understanding that things are not right in the church as we tolerate this kind of sin. We are not well. We are not as a church right with God because there is sin being tolerated in the body that isn't something that someone's repenting of and just struggling with. It's something that he's just outwardly doing. And instead of people calling him to repentance, they're just tolerating it. And this then means that it was something for the entire church. Mourning over sin like this, this idea of church discipline, this is not just for pastors and elders. This is something that is congregational, and it must be administered by the entire congregation. To refuse to follow the discipline of your church is to be in the same kind of boastful arrogance as the church of Corinth. Because it is boasting in this sin instead of mourning over it, which God has called the church to do. And so this does take away the excuse that if you were not personally offended by someone in the church, right, if someone's under church discipline, but it didn't really involve you and you're not offended by it, therefore, you know, it, you can continue on with this person as if nothing's wrong. And what Paul's saying is that's not the case. This is congregational. This is everybody. So Paul, on the one hand, is confronting the immoral act of the individual And at the same time, he is confronting the sin of the church for tolerating this sin and not practicing church discipline, not removing this man from among them. Verse 3 through 5, it says, For I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. A couple things here. Um, One, Paul is acting as if he were present and he pronounces judgment on this individual. Right? Remember, Paul has taken this posture as being a father to this church. They are his beloved children. So he has the right, even though he is not physically present, he has the right to say, Put this person out. He needs to come under discipline for the protection of my other children here. And this is a power that has been given to, church, to the church. Matthew 16, 18 through 19. Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, but whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's authority given to the church under the authority of Christ. Now, he doesn't just say that there. Then, in Matthew chapter 18... 
when church discipline, when Jesus is talking about church discipline, he says, if he refuses to listen to the leadership of the, or if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So when the church gathers together in the name of Christ, it does have the authority to dismiss those who have refused to follow the laws of the kingdom of God. This is the kind of authority that Christ has given his bride. And I want you to think about that for a minute, because it actually does play out at an illustration level. If you have offended my bride, you have offended me because I am one with my bride. And my bride has the authority to welcome people into the house and excuse them from the house. Right? Does that make sense? My wife has the keys to the house. And if she welcomes somebody into the house, then I welcome him into the house. But if they start breaking the laws of the house and the rules that we have set down, and they start bringing in false doctrine, or they start bringing in sexual immorality, or they start bringing things into our house that we do not approve of or allow, then my wife has every right to say, you're out. You have to leave. And my response as the husband is, yes, you have to go. My wife has said so, and I am one with my wife. And this is the kind of authority that Christ has given his church. We are the bride of Christ. So when the church gathers together in the name of Jesus, and they need to discipline a member who is in grave, unrepentant sin, then it is as if Jesus Christ himself is disciplining the member who is in grave and unrepentant sin. And so if you are out of the community of faith, you have been loosed from the community. You are not bound anymore. This is the church under the authority of Christ. Now, the church doesn't just get to make up rules. The church doesn't just get to whimsically decide who to discipline and who not to. The church is under the authority of Christ and therefore is subjecting themselves to the word of God. Then Paul says, now in in some Bible translations, like in the NASB, it has, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan. And that I have decided is like in italics because it's not actually there. It's a translational insertion to understand. In some Bibles, it might just be an imperative and say, deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And that is, that is really the idea that is being communicated. Paul, since he is not there physically, is telling this church what to do. Because I have decided, you are therefore to deliver this person over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean? Okay. Well, some believe it means that the destruction of the flesh means the destruction of the sinful nature, that being turned over to Satan means that they are outside of the church and hopefully they will repent. And to an extent, that is true. But again, looking at the context of what Paul is building on here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he is building on the Old Testament understanding of what to do with such a person. Remember, 
the New Testament church is not so uh, disconnected from the Old Testament that they just ignore it. We, we do that today pretty well. We are modern-day Marcians where we just try to write out the things of the Old Testament that doesn't make sense to us or we don't really want to apply anymore. Well, that's not what the New Testament church did. Paul is building on Leviticus and he is building on Deuteronomy and he tells us this because at the end of the passage, he's going to quote Deuteronomy. But because he's building on this, this is the context that we have to understand. What Paul is building on is a curse-death view. That what has taken place is a kind of sin that brings upon it blood guiltiness. And when someone in the community of faith in the Old Testament in Israel lived in rebellion to God, in continuous rebellion to God, Leviticus and Deuteronomy tell us that there are two options. One, he must be put to death, or two, he must be excommunicated from the community. He is no longer welcome in this rebellion. And so what we see here is actually this is judicial. Another clue that it is judicial is because Paul says, deliver him over to Satan. Well, that verb deliver is the same verb that is used meaning to deliver over into the custody of. So it's judicial. And then Satan is the Hebrew word for the accuser. So what's happening here is Paul is saying, deliver him over to the accuser for the destruction of his flesh. Now, let's, let's look at this. When we are in Christ, we are free from the accusations of sin because Christ is there on our behalf. He has paid the price for our sins. We are free from the accuser, but the one under, the, under discipline is not. He is now turned over to these accusations against him, and there is no mediator or defense for him. This is what is taking place, because he neither has the community of faith, and because he no longer has the church, he now no longer has Christ advocating for him either. So the consequence is that his flesh is cursed. This is also building on Old Testament. God curses those who live in wickedness. Isaiah 24, 6, Therefore, curse devours the earth, and inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Proverbs 3, The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Matthew 25, 41, in case I was scaring you with all the Old Testament quotations, is, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And then Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68 is a list of curses, both physical, spiritual, and emotional, that God lays out for those who disobey his covenant. Now, let me say that one of the ways that I have seen this most played out is that when someone is under discipline from the church and they are asked to leave, if they will not repent, is what tragically takes place is a loss of biblical discernment. They lose a sense of biblical wisdom because they are under discipline and being handed over to Satan. They become stupid and foolish and unable to discern good 
from evil. And so this will lead to one of two results. The first is he will either suffer from this curse, which can be manifested in a number of ways. And what we'll see in 1 Corinthians 11 is those who live in this unrepentant sin even physically get sick and die. Or from suffering the curse and the destruction of his flesh, being expelled from the community, the church, will lead him to cry out for the mercy of God and repent and seek forgiveness. And that is what the church desires. Verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the need for church discipline is not merely for the individual. We care about the unrepentant sinner that needs to be asked to leave the church because he refuses to repent and confess his sin and turn from his sin. But it's not just for his sake, it's also for the sake of the rest of the body. Paul is more concerned for the church community and their holiness. They are boasting as though this perversion was not, did not need to be disciplined. And that unrepentant sin is like a leaven within the dough. And this leaven is a toxin that will infect the rest of the church. And so the posture of the church must be for the purity of the bride. MacArthur, I want to quote him here, said it really well. He said, discipline is difficult. It is painful and often heart-rending. It is not that we should not love the offenders, but that we should love Christ, his church, and his word even more. Our love to the offenders is not to be sentimental tolerance, but a correcting kind of love. Ignoring the leaven will ruin the dough. Allowing unrepentant sin in the church will ruin the witness of the church. This is what happens in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 as Paul confronts the churches that have allowed sin to remain. He will remove their lampstand. It says he will make war against them with the sword of his mouth. He will vomit them out of his mouth and they will be the ones who are cursed. Instead, the church is to be characterized by the new Passover in Christ. So we instead are called to celebrate the victory over sin that came through Jesus Christ, and we are to live in light of that victory. And so when we are in sin, we are actually living in malice and wickedness, and not in the sincerity and truth of who we are in Christ Jesus. So therefore, we do not celebrate sin. When we sin, as we all do, we are called the New Testament tells us to mourn over that sin. And then we need to repent and return to the reality of who we are in Christ. And that's the call that Paul has for the church. 
Then he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside the church, God judges. Therefore, remove the wickedness, wicked man from among yourselves. So there's two categories that Paul sets up here. There's the immoral of the world and then the immoral within the church. Now, the immoral within the world, we are not to judge these people because that's, that's what God's already doing. This is what John tells us in John 3, 17, that God has already judged those within the world. They are already being judged by God. And we know that this is true because this is what we are told in Leviticus 18 when God already has judged the wicked nations for living in rebellion to God and he has cast them out of the land. They are not in Christ and therefore we do not and cannot associate with them on a certain kind of level. They are not our brothers in Christ. They are not our sisters in Christ. But this does not mean that we cannot associate with them, period. Not in the same way as an immoral so-called brother, that Paul says. So, somebody who is not a believer, there is a level of association that you are expected to have with them. You are to love on them and to bring the gospel to them. And as Paul says in Ephesians 5.11, you are still to call out and not remain silent on the sin of the world. That's part of loving them, is bringing the gospel to them opening your home to them. You can share a meal with them. Because our association with the people of the world is to bring them to salvation and to bring them to faith and repentance. But on the other side, the other category, is the immoral people of the church. And Paul uses this man because of his perverse sin, but then he expands the implication to really any immoral, unrepentant person within the church. This is why he says um, not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person. That's the umbrella term. And underneath that, covetousness, an idolater, a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Right? Paul's lists of sin, these are his vice lists that he used throughout his letters. They're not meant to be exhaustive. What Paul is saying is that even though I am using this example of this grave sin, recognize that anybody in the church who is going to live as an immoral life of unrepentance, if he will not repent, will be excommunicated and you are not to associate with him. Now, why is this? Why is this so important? Because what he is showing or she is showing, is that they are not living in the victory of Christ that they have claimed he has purchased for them. And so they bring reproach on the name of Christ. Paul says we are to judge them, but we judge them on the standard of their professed faith in Christ. He is the one or she is the one who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good and then trampled on the blood of Christ, as Hebrews tells us. And he is to be called to repentance, 
But he's not treated as simply a non-believer. Because what he has done in his unrepentance is he's trampled on the blood of Christ and therefore he is not even to be associated with at the level of a non-believer. In fact, what what Jesus tells us in Matthew 18 is that he is to be seen as a tax collector or Gentile, which means he is supposed to be seen as somebody who is not only outside the covenant, but outside the covenant and unclean. He has rebelled against God. He has betrayed the covenant. And so this kind of unrepentant sin leads to excommunication. So Paul is right then to say that we do not even eat with such a person because eating was a sign of covenantal fellowship in the ancient world. And it was through hospitality. So Jews would not eat with tax collectors and Gentiles because they were outside the covenant membership and they would make the house unclean. And so to not eat with someone is actually an act of war against their sinful rebellion. They do not get the benefits of the Lord's hospitality. They do not get the comfort of your hospitality either. And to do so is not just to undermine the discipline of the church, but is to undermine the Lord himself. So Paul then says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And he actually, this is a quote from Deuteronomy from several places where the sinner is either excommunicated from the community or even sentenced to death depending on the crime. Now someone had said last week when uh, Pastor Keith was talking about church discipline, they said, yeah, well, we don't stone them anymore. And you're right. But it's not because that was only for Israel. Because the Old Testament does show that these laws were not just for Israel, but that these surrounding nations in their wickedness were destroyed because of this rebellion. All who break the law of God are guilty. We as the church do not stone because that's not the kind of authority we've been given. That's not our place in society. It is Romans 13 that tells us that it is the authority of the state to punish wickedness and evil, not the authority of the church in that way. The church does not bear the sword against evildoers. That's what the state is for. The church has not been given the sword. The church has been given the keys. We've been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So our authority under the authority of Christ is to bind and loosen according to his word. Excommunication should be much scarier than stoning. Because excommunication forewarns of the final judgment of God on the unrepentant sinner. Excommunication shows that unless this person repents, he went out from us because he was never a part of us. So, how do we respond to excommunication? How do we respond to this level of discipline where Paul says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves? Well, ultimately, your love needs to be for God and His Word and then for His church and then for the salvation of the unrepentant sinner. So we are to love God and His Holy Word then we have the responsibility 
for the protection of his lambs. We have the mission of presenting ourselves as a pure bride. And then we have the responsibility of calling out for the salvation of the unrepentant sinner, the man who has been excommunicated. So we need to recognize that a church submitting themselves to the word of God has a responsibility before the Lord to go through the painful process of church discipline when necessary. And if the church is not faithful, then it is the church itself that comes under the judgment of God. And so what does this look like? Well, when Paul says we do not eat with such a person, what it means is we do not fellowship with that person under church discipline on spiritual matters. We do not fellowship with them in Bible studies, communion, hospitality, worship, ministry, or even spiritual discussions that are built on anything but calling them to repent and be reconciled to Christ and his bride. We do not fellowship socially with a person under discipline. Paul prohibits sharing meals. We are not to be hanging out, celebrating, or continuing in regular social activities as if those under church discipline are in good standing with you. They are, if they are in good standing with you, then you are putting yourself at odds with Christ and his church. They cannot be in good standing with you either because you belong first and foremost to Christ. And in unavoidable circumstances like mutual family gatherings, work, etc., we are called still to love our neighbor as ourselves, to extend respect and peace to this person under discipline. But even these situations do not put a temporary hiatus on discipline, and they do not be, constitute being a false witness by pretending all is well. So if someone from this church or even another church is under church discipline for unrepentant sin or has abandoned the church for their unwillingness to deal with church discipline and you have been treating them like a brother or sister, then you need to repent of that because you are actually getting in the way of the refining work of Christ. You are creating a stumbling block to keep the destruction of his flesh, keep him from the destruction of his flesh, even if you think you are helping. You need to call them to repent when you know they are in sin. You need to call them to reconcile with the church if you know they have fled or left or been excommunicated on bad terms. And you need to do this even if you don't think you know the whole story and even if you don't agree with the church the way the church has handled it. And the reason why we can say that confidently is because this is a community and a family. And if you don't like the way that the church has handled things when it comes to discipline, then you have a responsibility to either submit or leave. But you cannot remain and undermine the decisions of Christ's bride. <clears throat> Lastly, how do we keep ourselves from being under discipline? How do we keep ourselves from being this man? Because I want us to understand that we are all capable of this kind of unrepentant sin. Not that we would all commit the same sin as this man, but that we are all capable of living in unrepentance. We open ourselves up to this kind of discipline when we live in sin. 
And when we give in to one kind of sin in our lives, I think a lot of us know that very quickly we can spiral out of control and find ourselves committing sins that we never would have imagined we would have done. So we must begin by recognizing that we, but by the grace of God, are capable of just about the darkest things we can imagine. And this is why Paul also warns in his letters that we, not, that we not think too highly of ourselves, lest we too fall. Who would have thought that such an honorable king, who would have thought that the man who defeated Goliath that was called a man after God's own heart would be capable of committing adultery and then murdering her husband? So we need to open up and be honest about the sin in our lives. Unrepentant and unconfessed sin will put us under God's discipline. Psalm 32, 3-6 says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Unconfessed sin will ruin you. Unrepentant sin will destroy you. Not only will it hurt you individually, but it will hurt the church community. Joshua 7.19 is the story of Achan where he had disobeyed God and because he had disobeyed God and he had hidden that sin and he thought he could keep it to himself and nobody would know, the next time Israel went out to battle, they lost and men lost their lives because of the hidden sin that Achan had held on to. And so Joshua And 7.19 says, Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And the end of the story is, Achan confesses his sin, and he is stoned for it. But his spirit is saved, I believe. Ananias and Sapphira are put to death for lying and blaspheming the Holy Spirit with their lying. Their flesh is destroyed, but their spirit is saved. First, you must confess your sin to God because it is Him who you have ultimately offended and should fear. Then you need to confess your sin to a trusted brother or sister. This does not mean publicly air out your dirty laundry, and nor should the church do this unless it is a public sin. Many times people, I think, want to get up and confess their sin because they want to relieve a weight on their shoulders. But I also think it's a good way to actually hide the deeper sins that you're hiding beneath. And so sometimes I think we we get up in a community and we just air out our dirty laundry because then people won't suspect. They'll think, well, he's very open, he's very honest. And they won't suspect that deep down he's hiding things that he's not ready to admit. So if it's a private sin, confess it privately to a brother or sister for accountability. And when necessary, also confess to the person that you have sinned against. And if it's habitual sin that you struggle with, 
And I would also add the kind of sin that you know holds a lot of gravity from God's law that is called an abomination. Then you need to seek help from an elder in the church. Right? We finished the book of James and towards the book of James we talked about the prayer of a righteous man. We talked about going to the elders and confessing. So men, seek help from Pastor Keith and John Kantz and Ralph. Ladies, first seek Mary and Debbie. And they will decide if it's something that the elders need to be involved and help with. So not only is what I'm saying biblical, but I can also tell you from my own experience. Because I have gone through the struggle of trying to hide my sin. And I have experienced the heavy hand of God in those times. I have experienced the fear and the shame of having to confess my sin to the people I've hurt. I've, had, I've experienced how hiding and even approving of my sin has led me down some sinful spirals. I've experienced the pain and grace of God exposing me when I tried to fix things on my own. Because there have been times in my life, I will say, where I was genuinely contrite and broken over my sin, but I thought I could fix it. All I needed was the help of the Lord, and I could fix it. He could be my accountability. He could be my help, and we will get through this together. And I quickly learned that I needed the help of the community of faith around me. I needed the prayer of the brothers of Christ. I needed the help of leadership. And I've also experienced the joy of confession and accountability. If you will not repent of your sins, then there will more than likely be a point where you will be exposed and you will have to come under church discipline. And I will be honest that a lot of people, when they get to that point, rarely repent. And some have even died in the rebellion. And so do the wise thing and reach out for help and accountability now. Don't let yourself become like this man. Because Christ is returning, and he's returning as a judge. And he's in the process of destroying his enemies, but the repentant sinner is not the enemy of Christ. Again, I want to quote John MacArthur because he just said it better than I could. It is not that everyone in the church must be perfect, for that is impossible. Everyone falls into sin and has imperfections and shortcomings. The church is in some ways a hospital for those who know that they are sick. They have trusted in Christ as Savior. They want to follow Him as Lord, to be what God wants for them. And it is not the ones who recognize their sin and hunger for righteousness who are to be put out of fellowship. Christ knows your failings. He knows how sin works. He knows where it is in your heart. But He also knows when you genuinely hunger and thirst for Him and His righteousness. Even when you stumble and fall into sin. Even when your sins are even when sins are continuously rearing their ugly head in your life, right? And you're battling them and occasionally you fall and then there's seasons of victory, right? As you grow in Christ. He knows this. He knows this all. And he willingly went to the cross for those sins. 
So you can be encouraged knowing that he will complete the work he started in you. Discipline is not meant for the repentant sinner who is struggling. Discipline is for the sinner who will not repent and will continue to walk in rebellion. And the reason why, as I said earlier, and I saw some of your faces were, you know, I think some of you who are all about once saved, always saved, were getting ready to stone me up here. Let me just tell you, what I'm talking about is not that if someone is loosed from the church that they've lost their salvation. What I mean is if they're loosed from the church, what it probably is showing is that they were never saved to begin with. Because they will not repent and they will not be reconciled to the bride of Christ. So if you are living a life that desperately wants to honor Christ, but you're struggling with sin, confess, repent, and find accountability in the church. And then live in the assurance that you are in Christ and he is in you. And with that now, with that in mind, we come to the Lord's table this morning to celebrate what Christ has done and to celebrate what he will complete in each and every one of us. Grace is poured out at this table to strengthen you as you dine with Christ and his followers. So even if you are weak and struggling right now, this time of communion is meant to strengthen you and comfort you and to remind you of who you belong to and to go forth then and live as one who serves the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings.